Welcome to Factor Magri, dedicated to New Zealand's primary industry. Each week, I talk with farmers and producers, industry, the science community, and policy makers to hear their stories and expert opinions on matters relevant to both our rural and our urban communities. This week on Factor Magri, I'm catching up with academic and environmental advisor Dave Frame to get his thoughts on where we are at in terms of environment and emissions policy for New Zealand farmers. Dave joins me now. Hello, Dave. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, how are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. Good. Please, can you tell me about the work that you do, Dave? Well, I work on um, various aspects of climate change, science and policy, uh, and some other um, kind of public goods, global public goods issues. I guess um, most of my climate change work has two aspects. One is looking at extreme events and, mm-hmm. and how climate the climate is changing at the moment. Um, so I'm directing a, an Endeavour Fund um, program on that, uh, which is around $10 million of investment looking at um, how uh, what, what kind of fraction of extreme events can be sheeted back to climate change mm-hmm. and how that might change in the future. So that's, that's a, a fairly big chunk of what I do. And the other aspect is I use um, simple climate models to shine light on policy questions and that's where in New Zealand that the main manifestation of that is looking at uh, methane and the role of methane in climate change and in our uh, climate targets uh, in climate policies. Okay that's really interesting and of course today we are looking at this from a, a primary sector position or a farming position. I understand there is a collaboration between the Institute and the Universities of Oxford and Reading at the Centre for International Climate Research in Norway and is showing a new and fairer way of thinking about methane emissions policy. Can you tell me a bit about that? Um, That that group of universities have been active in this area for quite a while. Mm. Uh, Keith Schein, who's a fellow of the Royal Society and one of the the great climate change researchers of his of his era of his generation Keith's about 70 now mm-hmm. he's been writing on this topic of how you compare greenhouse gases for well over 20 years and um and I think really a lot of what we're doing those what what those groups are doing has spun out of that in his work with Jan Fuglesvet who's a Norwegian researcher um and I think the baton's kind of passing to to younger researchers, mm. uh, but those universities have all had a had a long stake in this game, and um, it's not that surprising that they're the ones kind of pioneering the the path. Really, um, uh, one of the key figures in that in this area is Miles Allen, who uh, Miles and I were among the well, we were really some of the first people to look at cumulative emissions of climate of uh, carbon dioxide and how they were affecting the temperature and we showed there was a pretty linear relationship between those things and that's mm. really where the net zero conversation around uh, how you have to get long-lived greenhouse gases to zero comes from and I, I, I see the work on short-lived gases as spinning out of combination of, of that work on um, on the need to get to net zero and of coming out of kind of Keith and Jan's work where they've for a long time been thinking about short-lived gases. So it's really something where two two strands of research have kind of come together. Uh, for a long time, people have been unhappy. Researchers have been unhappy with carbon dioxide equivalents, the, mm-hmm. the main way that people have historically combined gases. Um, and I think really there's now a, 
as mitigation gets real, there's going to inevitably be a search for better ways to do things that have fewer ambiguities and and uh, are more accurate. Mm. Is the split gas approach the right one? Do you think? Yes, uh, that's I think really really clear. Um, basically, in any other environmental pollution problem, um, we would take account all human health problem. We'd take account of uh, dif- differently of those um, pollutants that uh, accumulate and those that break down. So we uh, we're you know we cap the amount of heavy metal we release into the environment. Um, you know we have we have kind of lifetime doses of some of some pollutants, uh, and those are the those are the, the cumulative ones. So things like lead and mercury in your bloodstream and in your brain. They don't break down; they just accumulate, and they and you get worse as those accumulate. Mm. Um, and uh, and the short-lived stuff, um, things like alcohol and caffeine, mm-hmm. do break down. Mm. And so we take a different approach to those. We kind of tell people not to have more than a few cups of coffee a day, and obviously to not, uh, you know, your lifetime intake of alcohol is does correlate with some health outcomes, but but. You know, most of the trouble you'll get into is is through binge drinking, where your where your flow ingestion is too high. Mm. So it's kind of it's kind of routine in any other setting to to take account of the fact that some some substances are long lived and some are short lived. Mm. And really, all we're doing is applying that same common sense everyday logic to the climate change case, um, and uh, and just simply saying, well, look, these two things are quite different. We we ought to treat them separately. And I, I, I'm convinced it's the right approach. I haven't had any in principle objections to that. All the all the objections tend to centre on um, uh, practical, like um, just just simply the countries have agreed to do it this way, so we better not mess with it, which is an exceptionally poor um, line of reasoning. Mm. For those that are listening and, and may not be aware, can you just explain a bit about, or a bit further about the split gas approach and which gases we're talking about and their impacts, of course? Sure. So, um, biogenic methane. So, the, the methane that's released by rice paddy uh, cultivation and by um, ruminants, as they, you know, ruminants eat grass, um, they have these very complicated and rather ingenious stomachs. Uh, one of the byproducts of of that is that they they exhale uh, methane, mm. um, and methane is a powerful per kilogram. It's powerful gas in terms of trapping radiation, so it's an important greenhouse gas. But uh, it's short lived, so it only lasts around ten, roughly around ten years. Uh, carbon dioxide, by contrast, pulled out of a fossil reservoir, so you know you pull your oil out of the ground or your coal out of the ground. That that carbon has been retired from the biosphere, the active biosphere, for millions of years. You put that carbon back up in the atmosphere. Per kilogram, it's not that it's it's a it's a weaker gas than methane, but we emit many, many more kilograms um, of CO2 than we do of methane. And the, the thing about the the um, carbon dioxide is that it hangs around for an incredibly long time. So it, it, most gases, you can say it has one time scale. Um, CO2 actually has multiple time scales because there are multiple ways that the uh, climate system, the Earth system, disposes of it. But the, the take-home point is that about 30% of the kilogram that comes out of the back of your ute or car 
um, will be in the year, still in the year, in a thousand years' time. Mm. A third of it will still be in the atmosphere a thousand years later, and that's that's just not the case with methane. Mm. So carbon dioxide determines your long-term carbon legacy. Mm. And and so when we treat these two things as though you can emit this much short-lived gas instead of this much long-lived gas and be carbon neutral, it really doesn't work because that short-lived, long-lived distinction uh, is really, really important. Interesting. Now, and just getting back to us here farming in New Zealand, what did you make of Hiwaki Kanoa's proposal to the government? And I guess there's two parts to this question. That's the first part. The second part is what about the government's response to that proposal? And in particular around sequestration, there are a lot of tools out there to measure total on-farm sequestration and quite accurately we're seeing this internationally. But the government has chosen so far to admit this. What do you make of that? Um, first of all, the structure of Heiwaka Ekinoa is is fine. Um, it treats the gases in line with you know the the impact on the climate. Uh, you, pricing. There's a whole bunch of different ways you could go about setting up a uh, a price or quantity based mechanism. You know, cap and trade system or just a levy, which is what has been suggested. Mm. Uh, and on methane, on biogenic methane on farms, and that that's totally reasonable. Mm. I do think that uh, the risk is that it, well, the yeah, the risk is that it concentrates all the all the risks, all the mitigation onto sheep and beef farmers, uh, and that it, I don't think that's what most of the people who are um, active in this area think is is kind of the right or the fair outcome. So, so I, I you know I, I think there's an open question about how much you um, allow farm sequestration to offset or to to uh, yeah well to offset the methane warming so I, uh, Simon Upton's just report released a report describing how a one-off planting uh, on farm could offset a, an extra herd member basically so if you have a a, a, a sheep that's about 0 0.08 hectares Mm. Um, of pine would mm. permanently offset that extra member of herd forever. So, like, there's a lot, there's a lot of ways you could use sequestration uh, mm. that are sensible and that would lead to sound outcomes. And it, it's, I think, regrettable that the government didn't involve more variables; that it just went with the levy and just on the methane. Mm. Um, because real farming systems, of course, are you know you're integrating across a whole bunch of different properties and variables you're worried about your soil you've got um you've got the, the you know trees you've got the animals you've got fertilizer use and fertilizer use is another component of climate uh policy really because of nitrous oxide emissions which are very significant mm. um and it's really a question of how many moving parts you want your agricultural climate policy to have uh, meth uh, uh, nitrous oxide is actually something of a hybrid between the short-lived and long-lived gases. It's mainly long-lived, but a bit short-lived. Uh, mm. And, you know, there's a kind of an open question about policy design there. And I would hope that the government in the sector would go back and try and do a bit more integration um, so that the policy ends up being a little bit more rounded um, and a little bit less perhaps just singularly focused on methane where there aren't many options to do something about that uh, mm. so so i think there's further work to do 
Um, but it's a hell of a lot better than sticking it in the ETS, which I think would have um, been an unsubtle policy that where farmers would then be exposed to um, price rises that are necessary in the face of needing to get to net zero on carbon dioxide. Mm. Um, and I think that could have all sorts of consequences down the track where farmers end up inheriting those price rises when they really shouldn't for their methane. Um mm. You know, so look, it's. I, I'd like to think Heiwaka Ekino is going to be a work in progress. I hope the, that a future national government doesn't just bin it. I think it's reasonable that we have um, prices on uh, greenhouse gases. That is a that is mm. a fair thing to do. There's a question of how high they should be um, in the absence of other countries doing anything like this. So that, that, I think, that question of conditionality of what other countries are doing how much we're prepared to expose our uh, industry to prices that no one else faces when this is, after all, a collective problem. Th those are all active parts of, they should be active parts of the discussion around Heiwaka Ekinoa. Mm. I think you're right. I think it would be a shame if any government of the day uh, scrapped Hiwaki Kanoa. I mean, there's there's a dozen or so slightly more organisations that have all come together and presented a plan for the industry. And of course, part of that are government departments that are part of that organisation. And that's no easy feat, getting all of those organisations together and delivering a response. Yeah, absolutely. And And I think they deserve some credit for how hard they've They've worked at it. Um, you know, it's not perfect. And I think everyone will be unhappy with different parts of it. Mm. Um, but but I just would encourage people to keep working on it. Mm. Um, people, people worked at emissions trading systems and carbon taxes for a long time, for a lot longer than Heiwaka Ekinoa has mm. had. Mm. And mm. they people had to work through some really hard problems and issues about trade exposure and leakage and, and what have you. And you know, and they had the time to do that. And and actually, with short-lived gases, you have less time pressure than long-lived gases. So so I would hope that it'll continue to evolve um, rather than just get get junked. And I I don't think I don't think it's reasonable of farmers to say no, we're just not going to do this, and we're going to you know we're going to oppose it at all at all levels. I, I I think that is you know that that's not the way farmers normally behave. Normally farmers care about the environment. They work hard to protect it. Most farmers are on board with environmental policy, broadly speaking, mm. even if they have a lot of issues with, you know, some specifics and and quite the amount of red tape and mm. and, and things like that. So so I think it would be a real shame to oppose it entirely. Uh and I think that that actually those who there's a few farming voices, a small number who are saying, "Oh, we should take our chances in the ETS." I think that's a really bad idea. It's bad policy, and it, it would be a case of in ten years' time, you know, you, you'd have made a. I think it might be attractive in the very near term, but I think ten or twenty years down the track, you'd really regret that. Mm, I agree, Dave. Have you got a view, or what is your view on afforestation in this country? Is wholesale land use change into permanent? exotic trees for the sole purpose of carbon farming a good strategy for this country no no i don't think it is i you know the i, I for years um i've been a decade or so i've been going to business and climate meetings and you hear companies in in urban new zealand get up and say well you know we're going to 
change a few light bulbs and do a bit of demand reduction, you know, re reduce our our electricity consumption and what have you, our, our fossil consumption where possible. And then to meet our ambitious targets, we're just going to plant a lot of trees. But they then kind of have to say, because they know there aren't enough trees, there's just not enough space for, new, for that to be a scalable policy. They kind mm. of go, well, I don't know what the rest of you are going to do. Mm. And and really the, the, the fundamental problem from a policy perspective here is that something that should be a last option or a backstop policy that's planting trees to offset what you can't reduce is too cheap. And it's the first option people go for instead of being the last. And, and that's basically a, a policy design issue, that what they really should be doing is limiting the um, the amount of forestry uh, and making people do more domestically uh, to reduce emissions. And, you know, to, to be honest, I, and, and New, Zealand's, New Zealand's international policy relies far too much on trees being planted overseas as well. This is this issue with afforestation first instead of, actual re reduction of our gross emissions mm. is, a, is a generic problem that New Zealand has um, at both at the government level and at the firm level. And um, it, it puts us out of step with the rest of the world who, who think that mostly your uh, emissions reduction ought to be gross emissions reduction rather than offsetting. Mm. Um, so I think, I, I think it'll have to change if we're serious about it. I also think it it will put pressure on um, on the very ambitious uh, goals in the Zero Carbon Act and and in the carbon budgets. And I'm not sure I'm not sure how how they will age those particular goals. Mm. In my view, New Zealand is a, a food producing nation. We're a farming country, and New Zealand's primary industry is very important to this country. Arguably, our most important industry that we have. Do you see the sector as important as I do? And what does the future really look, look like? Yeah, well, that's a that's a tough question to answer. Is what does the sector look like? But you know, I, I grew up in Southland, and we we, we had a lot of there was farming was extremely prominent down there. It was the main thing. You know, the, the, it's the way that province makes its living. Mm. And, um, uh, you know, I've been in academia for a long time. For I've been at universities one way or another for over 30 years now. Mm. And in spite of the fact that people keep talking about the need to turn into a highly skilled, developed country kind of economy with, with all these, uh, you know, way up the high, highly skilled end of the service sector, New Zealand as a whole hasn't made that transformation, and actually, it's it's farming by and large that keeps the export receipts flowing into the country mm. that lets us maintain the lifestyle that we have. Mm. And um, in spite of the fact that people keep saying, "Oh, we need to move away from that," we need to we need to be this highly skilled country. You know, our, our education system does not line up with delivery on that. Mm. We we have consistently failed to produce companies at scale that are those highly skilled service sector uh, companies. We have consistently failed to educate people in the, even to the level of the top half of the OECD countries. Um, so all the people who say that the, the bright new 21st century doesn't involve farming uh, have very little evidence to point to that actually there's a major shift underway. Um, in fact, our farmers have been among the, you know, the 
that the people who have innovated most, I would argue, that they've actually done a good job of reacting over the last 40 years since the, mm. the old days of the supplementary minimum prices. Mm-hmm. You know, they, mm. they, they, they are an innovative sector and they're one of our few. Um, and the other main export earner, of course, is tourism, mm. which, as we've just seen over the last couple of years, is a rather capricious way to make your living. Mm. And it's not one where you have highly skilled jobs as a as a rule um you know so so i think agriculture i I think until um i'm open to the idea that we might do different things in the future uh because who knows what the future holds but Mm. but there's been a lot of talk about about this migration to a to a highly skilled service economy for over 20 years well over 20 years and it hasn't really happened and in the meantime we still expect the farming community to be the ones to earn the money overseas that lets the rest of us live the lifestyles that we do. Mm. Um, our universities are not in the top hundred. Um, our schools are not having a blinder. If you look at the um, OECD comparisons, mm. you know, and until those sectors, basically those highly skilled sectors uh, step up, uh, I wouldn't expect things to change very much. And, you know, and, and actually, I, I personally have, you know, I think New Zealand pays its way well with agriculture. And um, I think the normal thing to do is build clusters around what you have rather than what you kind of look at other people having and thinking, oh, it'd be cool if we had a Silicon Valley. Um, you know, most of the cases of economic clustering, I, I was the treasury analyst who did uh, the comparison with Finland back in the 90s when we were looking at Nokia. Mm. And and that all grew organically out of out of a forestry company um, who were making their own radio telephones, uh, mm-hmm. and but Finland happened to have a lot of engineers for for historical reasons, uh, and so that cluster kind of found you know found a way to grow organically, and um, the government supported it, and that was all great, but it didn't come out of nowhere, and mm. I think a lot of what people say when they expect us to move beyond farming um, is is pretty much based on wishful thinking and they can't really point to these big clusters where we're doing a terrific job and we're going to be the next big thing. Uh, and and actually our best bet in, in that next big thing space probably is still agriculture. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, I, 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 but I like the fact New Zealand is a food producing country. I think it's one of the reasons that we actually um, didn't have the kind of total panics that other countries had in the early days of COVID because mm. food security is, is one of the really foundational forms of security. Dave, I've thoroughly enjoyed chatting with you today. Thank you very, very much for your time. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Well, the current state of play was pretty well summed up by Dave, I thought. It is puzzling how policymakers are getting things so wrong in this space right now. Food security is at an all-time height of importance globally, and we do it very well in this country. And without our farmers... This country would be considerably poorer as a result. Hiwaki Ekanoa needs to be continually worked on, and there needs to be more recognition from policymakers on just how efficient our farmers are in this country. Rural communities need protecting, and 100% of offsetting emissions by big emitters through carbon farming needs to be stopped. That's all from me this week. Thank you for listening, and catch you next time.